Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to One to One, a series where I, Bertie, a longtime writer for Eurogamer, track down wonderful people from around the world of games for a proper chat. Remember, supporters of Eurogamer get these episodes before everyone else. Check the description below for more information. Today on One to One, two giants of British gaming. They are the founders of Games Workshop, the creators of Fighting Fantasy, before they each went on to move into video games where they would individually help establish series like Tomb Raider and Hitman, create iconic British studio Lionhead, and be tasked by the government to help lead a report into the entire industry and how it could be changed into a world-leading force. They'd go on to win BAFTAs, and one of them even a knighthood. Games simply wouldn't be the same without them. They are Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson. Welcome both of you to the show. Good morning and welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I say welcome to Steve. He's having some technical um, issues at the moment. So hopefully he pops up at some point. Um, but he's, he's not there just at the moment, although you may be able to see him. So it's a big year uh, for you both uh, because we're celebrating 40 years since the first fighting fantasy book came out. It's also 40 years since I was first released, so to speak. Uh, so it's a double celebration. Um, how do you feel about it being 40 years ago since you first published a fighting fantasy book? Um, there's so much history there, so many lives touched. Uh, there's even a fighting fantasy fest, uh, I see, in its fourth year. Well, we're delighted uh, the Warlock of Fight Up Mountain fighting fantasy has survived the test of time rather like a James Bond movie. We <laughs> move from one generation to the next and that's very gratifying and heartening and you know it's been always been a passion project for steve and i and 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 it'll go on forever and i don't think we'll ever stop writing fighting fantasy game books because they're so so close to our heart and and also the fact they were instrumental in getting a lot of people into the industry of not just um tabletop games but also video games is also a great you know it's a, a we get a great feeling of meeting people who read them in the 1980s now fully grown adults and they kind of revert to childhood when they talk about fighting fantasy, about the impact it had on their imaginations and, and inspire them to be who they are today. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing, uh, gratifying feeling. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're humbled in, in many ways by the effect it's had on, on, on the industry. And of course, we're particularly proud. Um, they've sold nearly 20 million copies now during yeah. that, that long period. So to mark the occasion, uh, you've both written completely new fighting fantasy books that are coming out in early September. I think you said 1st of September? Correct, yeah. Um, the books are Shadow of the Giants. That's your book, Ian, yeah. I think. Um, and Secrets of Salamonis. I keep saying salmon. My eyes just see salmon for some reason. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Um, and that's, that's Steve's book. Um, when did the idea come about to write two new books? And, and whose idea was it? Well, it was the 40th anniversary and we were always going to do something. We did discuss writing a, a, 
a return to Firetop Mountain in some way because that's where it all started, where Steve and I co-wrote The Walk of Firetop Mountain and I did the first half up to the river and he did the second half and ah. so we, we did um, our individual books. So we thought, wouldn't it be great to to cooperate again on a, on a return to Firetop Mountain? But we realized how impossible that is. <laughs> right, uh, writing an interactive book with with a game system attached to it handing over multiple story points to another author is it's quite a cruel thing to have to do to somebody so we thought let's write two separate ones and um, and scholastic our publishers were very very happy to do that so you know i began channels of giants and, and steve began writing secrets of Solomonis. how does it feel to be writing them again was it hard to actually do it were you a bit rusty or does it come back it's like riding a bike well, I don't I haven't really stopped. I've just slowed up a bit. I, I wrote one a couple of years ago, Assassin Valencia, and before that, uh, Port of Peril. But um, but the technique hasn't changed. For me, it's a case of having 400 numbers, um, and then you start on a writing a keeping a record of the of the uh, adventure on a flowchart. So you allocate number one as a starting point, and that splits to 77 and 300 for sake of argument, and you make notes and annotations against each. Ah. Uh, point and so you're keeping a record a record of this of this multiple choice adventure going forward and bring them back in pinch points to one point so a, a reader can have essential information which shouldn't be missed but so it, it's but the technique hasn't changed I, I used to write with a fountain pen and <laughs> and but that's changed obviously I write <laughs> into a strange little computer but making the physical map and having the physical numbers hasn't changed at all. So you still make a physical map? Yeah. And it's still, and it's still, um, still no use of software. We don't get any or anything. And, um, yeah, I'll be able to show you, show you at the end of the interview, the, the map, if you're so interested. It's like we have a Foley department making map rustling noises. There. Yeah, it is. yeah, I was looking for it, but then realized. So that's the that's the process, and and has that always been the process since since day one? Were you like, this is how we're going to do this? Four hundred points. Well, the four hundred points was almost by chance. I think when when the first book was written, it was like three hundred and ninety nine. So (laughs) Steve put a false reference point in there just to make it to nice and neat of four hundred. So, and that for me, ever since then, that they've always been 400 references, and that's why it's always turned to 400 has become a catchphrase. And yeah, it must have been quite. Was it quite messy back in the day? Because now, of course, you keep everything nice and neat on the computer. But if you're writing by pen and you're putting everything on paper, back yeah. did it start to get a bit cumbersome as things were getting? Well, you don't know anything different <laughs> before the computers were available. For, uh, in, in any meaningful way and so I used to hand wrote them with a fountain pen my girlfriend at the time used to type up into a manuscript um, and then we deliver this big lump of paper to <laughs> publishers penguin but the way the whole came about was fortuitous in itself we as you said we've been running games workshops since 1975 we were the distributors of Dungeons and Dragons we were obsessed with playing D&D and that whole exploring dungeons, killing monsters, finding treasure, role-playing, having characters and having a game system to resolve battles or events was deep in our psyche for many years. And we used to run these events called Games Day, Yeah. Uh, one of which was Geraldine Cook, who was the Penguin editor. 
and she was fascinated by what was happening at Games Day. You know, literally thousands of people playing D and D in a very kind of frantic way. And she said, "Would we be interested in writing a book about this phenomenon called Dungeons and Dragons?" And we said, "Well, rather than writing a book about the phenomenon, why?" Can't we write a book that allows you to experience what it is to role play? Ah. Idea. So we we set ourselves a task that we hadn't even even thought about, and um, and then we started to work on on a on a on a format, and um, we gave her a synopsis, which was entitled "The Magic Quest." Um, it had a kind of branching narrative and with suggestions of a of a game system attached to that. And um, she took it away, Geraldine, to her editor at Penguin Books, and not to, to the senior editors who apparently laughed so hard their head hit the table. That really? The idea of an interactive book was preposterous and no one would ever buy them. But she, to her great credit, carried on um, batting for our, our concept. And ultimately, she managed to convince the Puffin editor that this would be a good thing for children rather than an adult book. So three years later, Warlock of Fight on Mountain came out, but it was really down to Geraldine's determination. And then Steve um, had the task of, because we had different writing styles. My writing up to the river was a different style to his. So yeah, Steve you divided it in half. Steve very graciously volunteered to rewrite the whole thing into one standardized format. And then they published it in August 82. It didn't do very well. We were promoting it through ah. White Magazine ourselves. But then it spread into a couple of playgrounds at schools. And of course, that was the virality of the day. Um, obviously, there's no internet or mobile phones. So it was just the very powerful word of mouth. So pockets of, of, of uh, fans have started appearing all over the country via playgrounds and schools. And, and then it became a national phenomenon. But they... Penguins still didn't really get their heads around it. They they reprinted like a dozen times in the first couple of months until Geraldine came on the phone and said, great news, we want two more. So then Steve wrote Citadel of Chaos's book two and I wrote The Forest of Doom as book three and um, they went on to have phenomenal success. Because I read that uh, Penguin or Puffin were so sort of eager for more eventually that you, you couldn't collaborate on them because you it was more productive to do one each but judging by what you were saying earlier it actually just made more sense to write them separately oh steve's holding up a sign uh keep recording switch off ah i see um that's up to you it's like a sign it's like steve is a hostage holding up a sign for us to read in the background it's like a mystery in and of itself um uh, pu- go east, start go east. branching narrative choices <laughs> You're going to hold okay. it one two hands. Uh, we'll go east. I don't know. Up to up to you. Um, up to you, Steve. So, so, in the reason why we had guest authors, you know, some several years later, is that we couldn't actually keep up with the demand because Puffin suddenly wanted one every two months, and we were running Games Workshop during the day, coming home to our respective homes and having to write Final Fantasy game books from like eight pm to like two am in the morning, and that was having wow. quite a quite an impact on our sanity which we managed to do for a couple of years until we finally decided to to get some help so some of the guest authors came on as what we call the steve jackson and ian livingstone presents books uh, as the series continued to grow to 
till um, Puffin finally called it, called it a day after 59 books in 1995. At the same time, Workshop was growing from its very humble beginnings into a what was like now becoming a large games industry, a large games company. Yeah, so let's talk about um, Games Workshop quickly because well, I was reading back um, again about your... Uh... Okay, so tell me a bit about Games Workshop because this is where it kind of all begins for you. And from what I've read, you know, at school, I don't know how I got into reading about your schooling, but apparently, Ian, you got like one A-level and it was in geography. Um, but then somehow you're in a flat together living with uh, Steve and another person, John Peaks, John Peaks, someone like that. And it's from there you start Games Workshop. But there's quite a lot of time between you kind of leaving school and starting games workshop. So was this, is this an idea that you'd always have? We, we, you know, were you, how did you and Steve meet? In fact, we, we met at Alton grammar school. Okay. And, um, and you're a couple of years older, are you? Um, about a year and a half old. Okay. Let's not, let's, let's not say two years. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we both shared a love of Lambretta scooters as did our third friend, John peak. But we also, yeah, admitted that we like playing board games as well. So we had these common interests and we used to play board games as well. And um, Steve, John and I became great friends at school. They were both, you know, obviously smart enough to go to university unlike me. So they went off and I went to college in, in Stockport to do an HMD in business studies. But gradually we all moved down to London after, after that education parts of our lives and um, John was first and I went to share a flat with him then Steve joined us um, but we were sharing with two other people so that, whoever, ah. that was uh, we were invading their space <laughs> and John, Steve and I found a new flat in Bolingbroke Road in, in, in Shepherd's Bush and we had pretty boring jobs badly paid so again we stayed in quite a lot playing board games and thought wouldn't it be a great idea to somehow change turn our hobby and passion of playing games to some sort of enterprise without understanding what that meant. So we published a small newsletter and reached out to everybody we knew in, in games, send them a free newsletter. Steve and is this the Owl and Weasel? It was a newsletter before the Owl and Weasel. Okay. It became Owl and, Owl and Weasel. Um, and John was also a craftsman. He was a civil engineer by, by, by profession. He was also a craftsman and he was he was making um, worry boards and go boards and backgammon boards, and we sell them to to um, to some game shops and even to Harrods and do the administration. Wow. He was also writing for Games of Puzzles magazine at the time, and then we thought, well, let's turn it into a proper newsletter. So and that was Alan Weasel. Is that we sounds like 50... something out of Harry Potter? <laughs> we printed fifty copies and. Um, one of those copies found its way, don't know how, onto the desk of Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. He wrote to us, said, love you, magazine. Here's a new game I invented. What do you think? It was done. Wow. We played it. Steve and I became obsessed. John didn't like it at all. Uh, but we all agreed to buy as many copies as we could. And we ordered six copies. That's all the money we had in the world. And on the back <laughs> of that order, Gary Gygax gave us a, an exclusive three-year distribution agreement for the whole of Europe. Wow. Because he was also operating out of a flat in, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. He only, you know, they only printed a thousand copies of D&D. So we started selling it through, through Alan Weasel. People thought it was, an, we called the company Games Workshop because 
John's bedroom was like a workshop. <laughs> and um, we used to see people milling around on the street sometimes. And we were on the third floor because they were looking for this game shop because it's called <laughs> used to open the window, looking for Games Workshop, mate, up here. So they'd come upstairs and <laughs> weren't too disappointed. They went into a rather <laughs> disgusting-looking living room to mooch around and, and pull out a copy of D&D, which they happily went away with. And we didn't have a phone in the flat, obviously, no mobile phones. And our landlord, we used to share a public payphone on the ground floor, and the phone would always ring. It would be a telephone sales for D&D and run down. <laughs> There. It was always too late. He'd be there first and hang up on people because he couldn't be bothered. And we eventually decided, let's try and do this properly. So we all had full-time jobs. And we, Steve and I decided we we're going to go full-time. John decided not to because um, he, was a, you know, he, was, he had a grown-up job being a civil engineer. And um, he didn't want to, to join us on that adventure. So Steve and I went to the States in... in uh, in 1976 to go ah. to Con 9, which was uh, the games convention run by TSR. There we met Gary Gygax and, and all the fledgling games companies. Um, we also had a you know big big journey around the, around the States, like Jack, trying to be like Jack Kerouac on the road. And stuff. <laughs> I've got that book just up here. But... Yeah, and um, we hadn't, we'd given up our flat. We had no office, nowhere to live, ordered loads of games, sent them back to my girlfriend's apartment and um came back to, to the uk and realized we had a bit of a problem on our hands so we go to the bank manager thought that would sort out we'll get a loan then we'll get a you know we'll get some offices and get a flat and so you go into the bank manager and say hey we've got this great game it's a it's a role-playing game which you hear <laughs> and you kill monsters and find treasure and he looks at you rather like a dog watching television kind of completely freaked out by what we're saying and, and asked us to leave. But you could understand why, because we were hardly investor ready. We just thought our enthusiasm for D&D would it'd immediately write out a check. So the reality was um, that we had near just about enough money to rent a small office at the back of an estate agent, which we called the bread bin. It was tiny. <laughs> we were obliged to live in Steve's van for three months. Wow. Um, How big is this van, are, are we talking? It's a transit. Um, so wow. luxury. So uh, we also joined a squash club nearby so we could get up in the morning, have a shave and a shower, and then into the office till about midnight um, doing our mail orders and then back into the stinky old van in October and listen to the, you know, we, we called it living the dream, of course, because uh, we, <laughs> we were passionate about what we were doing and we didn't really see it as hardship. And they, this continued for a few months until we finally could afford a, a really awful flat on on, uh, on Oxbridge Road in Shepherd's Bush. and. And then ultimately, we were too big for the state agent to handle anymore. So we said, well, find us a premises we can operate out of. And uh, that's how um, the first Games Workshop shop appeared in, in 1978. And that was uh, in Hammersmith? Hammersmith? Yeah, in Downing Road in Hammersmith. And we moved our operations there. So we had a retail premises on the first floor. And Steve and I were running production and, and publications on on the floor above that must have actually felt like you had made it at the time that must have been quite a moment yeah well it was just the day on the 1st of april on 78 when we saw the the queue waiting there for the shop to open was amazing feeling because we thought what if no one turns up i mean we'd advertised it in white dwarf magazine and white dwarf came around because we decided 
Alden Weasler just had its day because it was, was just an instant print fanzine. So we decided to up our game, excuse the pun, and um, and went for a full color glossy, which was a big risk because it, it was a big investment required to uh, to do that. Wow. So there's a couple of years running the store before fighting fantasy becomes a thing. Um, and you're talking to this uh, person about a book and, you know, she takes a chance um, on you writing one. And you said the idea just came out at the time, you know, it just almost came out of thin air in a sense. Was it difficult? Well, not, not really thin air. We've been, you know, we're D&D obsessives and we wanted, if we were going to do a book, it had to be a lot more accessible um, and have less commitment required for for a casual reader. So we had a, a branching narrative with a very stripped down game system attached to give people a sense of, of, of battling. Ah, and Steve, I think we can hear you. Sorry to interrupt you. Whoa. Hello. What? Welcome Hello. to the call. Well, <laughs> so the story's been told now. for a minute, Steve, while I get a glass yeah. of water. <laughs> <laughs> okay so steve yeah. welcome to the court it's great to have you great to have well, you. thank you very much as you can tell i'm uh, well versed on these technical matters <laughs> uh, for those pressing the same buttons over and over again and finally it's worked. for those who are listening and not mm -hmm. watching steve has been on the call the whole time pushing buttons holding yeah. up messages to us and and finally <laughs> now um we've got him um on audio so we're at the beginning of of fighting right. fantasy and adapting the books or adapting Dungeons and Dragons in a sense. Um, yeah, basically, Fighting Fantasy was was a sort of um, midway point between choose your own adventure type um, books and Dungeons and Dragons. It was somewhere in the middle. And that seems to be what was made it successful because the, the, there were a bunch of people that were into Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragons and uh, science fiction books. Uh, and th this was the first game um, game books uh, that had some, some sort of level of depth to it uh, so. so was it how how difficult was it coming up with a, a kind of game system for for the books was it was it quite easy were you well, like oh well we'll use well, a stamina we to... thing this it's fine or, or was it actually quite we had, hard we had a, an argument we used to go around to ian's place and uh, this time we've got to sort out because he was doing the first half and I was doing the second half, and we hadn't sorted out what the different statistics were. So Ian wanted strength and uh, stamina uh, and or endurance or something like that, and I wanted skills, stamina and luck. And we'd go around uh, and have a game of uh, snooker for it, because Ian had a snooker <laughs> table. And, but we never got around to it in the end. So is that how you decided uh, arguments in those days? Because presumably, you know, you're working close together, you're living in a Ford Transit van together. You know, there must have been a few yeah. arguments. Was 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 snooker the way when, when you could get to a table, I suppose? <laughs> and it was a good way of sorting out disputes, really, but he always used to win. So. <laughs> it's <was> unfair. <laughs> so um, the Warlock of Firetop Mountain comes out and it's eventually a success. And you're asked to write more books. And then this launches you into, as you said, like a period of years where you're trying to run Games Workshop. You know, people shouldn't forget that you had this entire business to run as well. And then you're trying to yeah. write these books. Um, In evenings and weekends, yeah. Which sounds, which sounds quite draining. So let's pull back for a second and talk about what makes 
a good fighting fantasy book. So let's say I was going to write one, make my own rival business. I mean, I'm not going to do that. Mm. But um, what's, what's an ideal starting point for a fighting fantasy book? What makes a good in? I think some, uh, I think a variety of different encounters, um, some monsters, some puzzles, um, uh, and uh, some, some bits that are really tough to get through. As you probably remember, you die a lot in, in fighting fantasy. And, uh, uh, but the, the, the more difficult that they were, the better that the, the fans used to like them. Ah. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. Because yeah. the difficulty uh, is a, there was a playground. Sorry. I was going to say the difficulty is a defining characteristic almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether you know which was the most difficult one that you ever came across. Steve's um, games books were always more difficult than mine. He, I think he's delighted in torturing people more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was a question of um, choice and consequence. So the giving people big dilemmas of which is the right decision to make and then giving them a very rich atmosphere as well to make them feel really immersed in 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 the environment they were adventuring and then of course my job is to lure people to their doom make make try and get them to make a choice uh, as uh, you know that's uh, the fun was seeing people fall on poison spikes or being toasted by uh, by some fire-breathing dragon, that's always a result. So these these deaths, did you, did you ever worry that you were punishing people a bit hard, or was that by you know eventually was that something you felt you had to do almost? Yeah, um, the, the, apparently there was a black market in solutions to fighting fantasy books when they came out, and they go around schoolyards and uh, enterprising players would sell photocopies of this the, the answer because we never gave the answers away until well i suppose until um recently when the hardback came out the hardback wall of the firetop mountain um a few years back um yeah do you have favorite books in the series uh well what uh, my own or of ian's uh, of either of either well i think for ian's i think the, the uh the one that I most admired was Death Trap Dungeon. Um, and why that, did that you brilliant? And why did you admire that one? Uh, well, because it, it was a lot of it's to do with the color cover, I have to say. But the, <laughs> the um, it was a Ian McKay uh, classic. Um, and on mine, uh, I think Sorcery, the Sorcery Adventure, were four different books. Why I, why I did four books instead of a trilogy or just two or something, I've no idea, but it went over four uh, volumes and uh, it was tough getting through. There was a magic system to um, uh, learn and, uh, I, yeah, I put the most into that. From my point of view, for Steve's books, obviously Sorcery because it was an epic and, you know, well-respected, um, incredibly, you know, satisfying mega adventure from for my books death trap yes there was, it was a great cover but it was kind of <laughs> it did exactly what it said on the tin you know it was a a, a dungeon crawl but there was a, had a dilemma that you had to and a lot of people 
weren't upset, but kind of a bit disappointed because yeah, there's a known player character called Throm, the barbarian who you meet in the dungeon. And at the end, you're faced with this problem of being told that only one person get through alive. So it ended up with this kind of you all Throm. So that was uh, some that could big impact on some some uh, some readers at the time. And the other one for me was City of Thieves. Uh, people ah. like Port Blacksand and all the the horrible that. people who live therein. I have that one here. I'm just holding it up to the camera uh, for yeah. people. Um, I'm I'm familiar with the sorcery series from um, from Inkle's lovely ab- adaptations uh, recently. Of course, fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, it was, was yeah, they did such a brilliant job on that, and and they deserve the success they got with it. I mean, that um, the the apps version um, has probably sold over a million units. Yeah, it's, it, these are the not ones that they're given away. These are these are actual sale, and uh, deserves it really. I mean, considering it was a, a text, a pencil and paper game basically, um, uh, but uh, it just it just hits a really beautiful artwork and um, a lot of input from Inkle as well. Uh, into the book. Yeah, I think it's wonderful the way uh, they adapted that. And, and Death Trap Dungeon, of course, had um, a game adaptation re- recently with the wonderful Eddie Marsan as the narrator. I don't know if you've seen uh, Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange, the BBC uh, drama, uh, as adapted from a book, but he, he's in that. Uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic the way he, he recounts the, the adventure and the choices. He has that very kind of wonderful way of delivery and uh yeah i was delighted when they want to do a kind of interactive jack and Nori adaptation of, of death trap do you have any favorite it's an odd question do you have any favorite deaths uh in the series any memorable deaths where you just thought that's ridiculous or like that's unfair like oh steve you're being so unfair or oh ian you can't kill people like that well of course of course you can <laughs> i think one of <laughs> I think that the maze of Zagor is the one that I always get um, uh, remarked on because it's uh, that was quite difficult. You go into it thinking it's just a maze, but there are transportation areas, so you lose track of of um, mapping it. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I mean, not so not the, the worst death, but people always refer to the cover of the original. Uh, Forest of Doom, the shape changes, this innocent looking goblin sitting on a log, log that metamorphoses into this sort of hideous spiked creature that kind of devours you. And um, also the, the blood beast in Death Trap Dungeon is quite a, a famous way to end your days. So as time mm-hmm. passes and um, the kind of 80s roll on uh, and you're turning out quite a lot of these books, you know, uh, an entire quartet, quadrilogy i'm not really sure how they're how they're called um and and ian you're writing two or three books a year i think it looks like is there do you ever get and it's quite strenuous as well do you ever get fed up of it i mean how are you keeping this fresh for yourselves well for me i I always say never again and as soon as handed the book in uh you kind of miss it that kind of anything always spending time thinking of new encounters new monsters or if you visit somewhere, you, you know, sometimes take a photo of something and say, oh, that would look great inside a Final Fantasy game, but oh, you could turn that into a puzzle. Oh, you could do it. So it's, it's, it's never ending. I mean, it's 40 years of thinking about encounters and 
causes of problems and, and horrendous ways of terminating people's adventures. So it's an ongoing thing, and, and um, it's for me, it's never going to end. I'm, there's definitely going to be another one if if the public still want it. Now, one of the the um, uh, beauty thing uh, is that these days, in, in the early days, for example, Citadel of Chaos, I had a month to write that, and managed to do it in a month. And I could never do that now. You could never do it as quickly as that. It was just. Uh, Folly, folly. Well, you had to be uh, at a certain stage of uh, the development of fighting fantasy. It was becoming a sensation, um, and you couldn't really stop. Really, that everywhere you turned, somebody wanted a new fighting fantasy book, and um, we were happy to oblige. But uh, these days, we can spend a number of years. Well, say a number of years, so, so a few years on uh, working up designs without having to worry about deadlines. Did your, the way you approach the books change over the years? Did you, did your style of writing them evolve? For instance, you know, I, I look at like Warlock of Firetop Mountain, then I look at uh, Creature of Havoc. I love this old cover um, here. And Creature of Havoc is, seems more writerly. The, the passages of writing are more expanded. Um, it seems a bit more in depth. Is, is, was that you evolving the way the books were written? Could you feel kind of innovations in that genre as you were writing well, them? Was any of that going on? Yeah. Uh, so, well, Creature of Havoc was um, probably the most difficult okay. one uh, that I ever wrote. And uh, you had to do things like uh, learn a language. You know, that was a difficult thing. And funnily enough, going back to Creature of Havoc all these years, years later, I can't, I can't remember how you do it. I can't remember how you, how you um, learn the language and use it. Yeah. it for no us, problem. I think the, 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 the style has matured and, and, and enriching the, the experience over time. Warlock Firetop Mountain obviously was a landmark. It was an innovation in, in interactive books, branching narrative with a, with a game system attached. But it was effectively like a, like a random dungeon. There was no sort of coherent overarching logic to to the d dungeon inside the mountain so now my style is to try and cre create a, a logical and cohesive story with a lot of interaction with non-player characters and a lot more dialogue and as well as the, the descriptive narrative so i think it, we've probably made the whole process a lot more sophisticated over time to kind of get greater immersion through through reading it and also trying to you know increase the the moments of the big moments as well. Yeah. Have there been any books like yours or pieces of interactive fiction that may, may even be games um, that have inspired you as you've been going along, things that have come out you know, since on, on the way, on the journey? I've never, ever read anybody else's game books. Wow. Uh, I've been obviously aware of them because A, I don't want to be accused of plagiarism and, and B, you know, I'm, it's you know well done them but i just want to stay in the world of fighting fantasy yeah i mean there was choose your own adventures out around about the same time originally but they didn't have a game system that was just effectively choose your own chapter and there wasn't a huge amount of decision points hugely successful but we were different by adding the game system to it and giving a lot more choice during the adventure 
so it's giving a lot more agency to the reader i think that's mm. why people like finding friends so much because they it's all about their own choice that empowerment through choice and and we, when we make, meet readers they always talk about the experience that they were having as individuals i was walking down the corridor i fell down the pits and got covered in you know poison spiders poisonous spiders it was very much a sense of them being there and that's what we wanted to try and achieve so uh, these new books that you have uh, coming out um the shadow of the giants and the secrets of salamonis where do they sit within the kind of collected fighting fantasy works? Are they similar to a particular type of book? Are they as difficult as another type of book? Where do they position themselves? Hmm. Interesting question. Well, I'll start, Steve, if you want, you want to think about it. Mine is it's in Alancia where I've put most of, well, yeah, all yeah. my... Fantasy titles, as opposed to the non-fantasy, fighting fantasy books like, like um, Blood of the Zombies and Freeway Fighter. But all my fantasy titles are in Alancia, so it's a new town. You start off in Firetop Mountain. You think you're on another quest inside Firetop Mountain, but no, it, there's you innocently release these iron giants on the world who grow to this enormous height and set about destroying the whole place. And so you have to find out how how to stop them from doing that. So you have to go to a, a new town in, in the called Hamlin, nothing to do with the Pied Piper, <laughs> and um, meet a few interesting characters and, and discover the secret to their downfall. And um, it, it's, it's similar in the sense that you need to discover stuff to defeat a, a boss, a big boss, but... I've tried to make the, your experience in in Hamlin a really enjoyable time. So it's not so much about the difficulty; it's about enjoying the environment you're in and meeting ah. interesting people, and um, and being able to work with our artist I really admire, Mike McCarthy, who worked mm. on the Fable games, has done the illustrations for the cover and the internal illustrations, and is really beautiful what he's done. Secrets of Salamonis was um, a kind of an attempt to get back into Alancia. Alancia is like the predominant um, geographical area for the whole of um, fighting fantasy, and it's split into three parts. One, Alancia is reserved for, for um, Ian and myself. Um, the old world is uh, for sorcery, the sorcery world, and then a, um, a world for the the um, present series writers because we had to yeah. um, and I, I'm a bit behind on the, the uh, Alancian adventure so this is one to uh, restore the balance but as the 80s go on as I say and the fighting fantasy series kind of well I guess you guys slow down a little bit you're not writing as many books as often you're giving yourselves a bit of a break and then you come to um, it's, I think it's 1991 and you decide to sell Games Workshop and, and move on and do different things. Why, why was it that you wanted to sell Games Workshop and move on? Well, we've been running Games Workshop since 1975. We were hugely proud of what we'd achieved thus far, but we were also had become you know, international best-selling authors and we had zero time for ourselves. And that, as I said earlier, was 
creating quite a toll on our not just our, on our, our lives but also on the you know, relationships we had at the time I mean, my girlfriend wasn't particularly impressed at the time we had no time to for social activities and mm. we had a guy called Brian Ansell who'd been running Citadel Miniatures um, which was part of Games Workshop and he had ambitions to have a greater say in in the Games Workshop and we we appointed him as managing director in 1986 to give us some breathing space to carry on writing Final Fantasy and ultimately he decided to make an offer to buy us out effectively through a management buyout which we agreed to in 1991. At the same time we'd also seen the growth of video games and um, we'd, we'd stocked Commodore 64 games and Spectrum games in our shops. We'd had a bit of a tough time dealing with the the, the early cartridges became massive overstocks in our shops as well. Um, you remember the ET game being buried in the in the desert states, the overstocks. But nevertheless, we were intrigued by the growth of the video games industry, and I always had a kind of a secret, well, even an open. Um, ambition to be part of that one day and obviously setting out games <laughs> workshop gave me the chance because I in nineteen eighty four I'd written the lead launch product for Delmark, a startup. That game was called Eureka, which came out in nineteen eighty four, eighty five, I can't remember now. And when I sold out a workshop I joined Delmark on their board as vice chairman and ultimately realized that invested at the absolute the worst time because the sixteen bit market was just about to fall off the edge of a cliff. So we did to um, four companies together, mm. um, Domark, Simis, uh, Big Red, and a company called IDOS Technologies to create Nuco IDOS, which we floated on London Stock Exchange in 95. I became ex executive chairman of, of IDOS. And so that was a whole new adventure. Obviously, the big point about IDOS was <laughs> acquiring the rights of Tomb Raider and publishing in, in October 96 the first adventures of Lara Croft. And we can see Lara Croft behind you right now, uh, frozen frozen in position, shooting something um, on the floor. There's a statue of uh, behind Ian. And Steve, you would go on to help uh, found Lionhead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, I was, um, I'd been given a page in the Daily Telegraph uh, on the weekend supplement. Uh, and basically it was to, to do with games and puzzles, anything I wanted to do. Uh, it was a great job. I mean, um, as a journalist, well, you know yourself, you get lots of freebies. And that was quite good. At Christmas, I remember in my uh, office, you get maybe 20 games arrived in a week uh, for re hopefully to be reviewed in the Daily Telegraph. But I had one spot to uh, to fill, I have to say. And anyway, so I'd um, I knew Peter Molyneux from um, uh, from the from the um, the interviews. He gave interviews, and we, we got talking about German board games, uh, and discovered we both had this mutual love of German or European uh, board games. Um, and uh, Peter uh, sold Bullfrog. Uh, we don't know how much, but um, he, he sold the company. And he wanted to put the money into a new company, which was to be Lionhead Studios and the four directors. Uh, and I, I was particularly pleased with this. 
focus it was getting back into creating games rather than writing about them um so uh it was a good move and uh, about four years later <laughs> black and white finally came out uh, that was that uh, was the main project at the time so taken two years took nearly four years i remember it well and and the rest of course would um you know be history as, as fable um came out um and eventually microsoft um yeah came along and so is this point presumably um ian and steve you remained and, and yeah i mean uh close friends at the time nothing's nothing's gonna yeah. ever good to destroy our friendship yeah. you know we've been friends now since 1966 so uh that's quite a landmark period of time. So we've, we've obviously had our differences of opinions, but it never become a problem that we couldn't resolve very, very quickly. We always put the friendship ahead of any possible disagreements. And I've heard that you have um, quite a close relationship with Peter Molyneux as well, in that you all have a board game night. I've heard that you play every Tuesday night uh, and you have done for, for years. Now is that it's the 1980s? Yeah, I've been running the games nightclub, and um, the thing about the games nightclub is that we have a, a, a newsletter, um, and here we are on issue 595 of the games night newsletter. Yes, we have. So ah. I've been secretary of the games nightclub and uh, write a newsletter and tend to um, slag everybody else off. Uh, and uh, we have a points system as well. So every game is recorded. If you win, you get X points. At the end of the year, we we have this this cup, the Pagoda Cup, which is given out to the to the winner. And um, of course, it's uh, it's always a big prestigious amount. But really, it's just a spoof gentleman's club. We're just uh, having fun. But during the pandemic, we didn't stop playing. We played games through BoardGameArena.com and had a Zoom window oh, open to do all the deals and generally slagging each other off um and you have from the looks of things behind ian there is a shelf stacked so full of board games that there is no discernible wall space in view it's just it's chock a block in fact i don't know how you get the games out of there unless you have sticky fingers and you kind of uh sucker them out like a, an octopus or something uh, but apparently you have something like 1500 board games yeah, probably a bit more than that now, but um, you know, it's a uh, gives me great comfort to be surrounded by my board games. Same people like you know, being surrounded by books. You know, being having books, but having board games around is great. And today, of course, board games are enjoying a huge renaissance. Um, ironically, because of the internet, in many ways, that the, in the old days, if, if an independent person wants to publish a game they probably make 5,000 copies of which 4,950 end up in their garage because they were <laughs> to reach the market because there weren't enough game shops around but of course today you can kickstart your projects it's the market telling you whether or not your idea is, is a good one or not you get funded up front and you can serve a global audience and pre-sell the whole print run which is great not only that you can learn how to play games on, on sites like Dice Tower, you can see games reviewed on BoardGameGeek.com. Uh, you can obviously buy games uh, from whatever website you would care to shop from. So the the internet has effectively enabled the rebirth and renaissance of board games, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful model, and of course, Dungeons and Dragons has resurfaced in a, an enormous 
uh, way. And it's again through the internet with very popular people playing or groups playing it. It's it's become a whole. Yeah, I mean, critical role. There's there's actors on uh, the YouTube channel has got millions of, of followers, and of course, Stranger Things has also given a great boost at D and D. So, yeah, you know, Dungeon Dragons, Fighting Fantasy, board games are all enjoying it. <laughs> but again, that, that can that's reflective of where society is now. People are enjoying vinyl records or enjoying physical books. Is a, I think you can't go totally digital as human beings has to be a mixture of analog and digital to uh, to to really keep us happy i think so um let's wind things up because I'm, i know you're busy and, and i've kept you uh, for a while um so there are a few questions that i tend to ask everyone they're just um some short questions um and the first of these questions is first game so what was the first game you played and it could be the first significant game or it could be the actual first game you played it was probably Monopoly. Um, oh, wow. I mean, this is, there wasn't much choice in the 60s. <laughs> so Monopoly, games like Buccaneer, Formula One, Cluedo, that's the, the fair I was brought up on, and chess. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to start Games Workshop, because we didn't particularly enjoy playing these games. We wanted to make, make games that we actually wanted to play, and the only games that were available that were enjoyable that in in the late 60s and early 70s were mainly american from avalon hill in particular in games like diplomacy mm. i mean that was the diplomacy was the first decent strategy game that i moved on to in the uh, beginning of the late 60s early 70s yeah um and how about you steve what was the first game you played do you, do you remember well the first game i played yeah wow that's <laughs> that's going back a long way i probably Probably the um, the Waddington's games, I should think. Like, uh, but the the one that I always have a special um, uh, bond with is a game called The Warlord, and it was produced by a geography lecturer uh, in what must have been around 1968, something like that. And uh, I was at University of Kiel at the time, and I was expounding the joys of t- diplomacy and getting lots of people. I was an evangelist. I came across one to one friend um, said, "You've got to play this game. It's fantastic." And he said, "Oh, that's uh, that's not bad diplomacy, but uh, you want to play the Warlord. That's that's the real ah. game." And there was one copy of the Warlord that, because Mike Hayes, Mike Hayes's um, uh, nephew, took it to to Keele University, and so there this one copy that went round, and uh, it was fantastic game we, we went on to produce it ah. um uh, at games workshop became it became apocalypse um but it for me it's the red box warlord that will always have that special memory um and it was one of the things that was special about it was the combat system which was so simple and yet so brilliant brilliant fantastic and uh, First video games, we used to play games on the PET computer, the Commodore PET, and also <laughs> one of the early console systems called Intellivision, and Steve and I used to play this baseball game to crazy hours of the night when we shared a flat in the late 70s. So what about the last game you played? What was the last game either of you played? You had board games or video games? Either or both. Mine is Lost Cities. I, I played that probably... Uh, four or five times a week 
Okay. Uh, it's a it's a little card game by a game board game genius called Rainer Knizia. Rainer Knizia games have got a special um, uh, formula for for doing them. They're always interesting, simple to play, um, uh, but you can um, apply strategies to it. Um, you can play intelligently, um, and this is just the best card game uh, I think I've ever played. I also like Lost Sisters, but I haven't played it recently. I've been playing games like Century Spice Road and um, Age, okay. and obviously still play lots of games on my on my iPhone. And they've been also testing a game called Kinseed on on Steam by some okay. ex Fable developers, and uh, really about enjoying that. Fantastic! And this is the clincher. What about? best game which is which i guess is your favorite game and again either board game or video game uh, depending on what you know comes to mind either or or both what's your best game best game well video games i think i've always had a, a, a soft spot for real-time strategy games um and uh board games i i guess i'd say dungeons and dragons because of history the history when this game came out, it was revolutionary, and it changed changed our lives. I, so, I, I never fall for that best game malarkey. <laughs> it's a bit like asking me which is my favourite <laughs> child when I've got four. You know, you love them all equally. So uh, I think you have to give you a range here. And obviously, in keeping with Steve's choice of D and D, you know, it had such an impact on our lives. We cannot ignore that as being best in the terms of of yeah, what we enjoyed at the time and 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 the doors are open for us thereafter and eventually from warhammer to video games etc um video games i mean again on an emotional front tomb raider because mm. i'm very much involved with the, the launch of that in, in in the 90s but yeah i haven't played it for some some time um board games and steve and i, I think have the same sort of love of mid-core strategy games, the ones I cited earlier, Century Spice Road and Stone Age and Splendor and It's a Ride and the, those where they don't last all night. It's not like hard work. They're yeah. enjoyable, lots of interaction, deals to be done, um, backs to be stabbed. Mainly <laughs> <laughs> <In> mine. <laughs> and, um, you know, I still like playing classic games. I still play... Virtual tennis on Dreamcast. I still that's great. I like playing Civilization. I mean, it depends who you're with, how many players, what you're feeling like a heavy or a simple game. It's I think it's very difficult to have the best. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. I'm I'm going to wrap it up there because I know I've kept you for a while. Uh, thank you so much, both of you, uh, Steve. Thank you for persevering. Yeah, we made it eventually through some technical <laughs> yeah. issues. Thank God for that. And thank you for yeah. thank you for fighting fantasy and games workshop and Dungeons and Dragons and all the, the many things you've you've been involved with. But I guess for this podcast particularly, thank you for fighting fantasy. Everyone look out for those those two new books, Shadow of the Giants and Secrets of Salomonis. Um, I think it was there coming first. Yeah, and we're, we're inviting people to come along to Fighting Fantasy Fest Day as well, which is on Saturday the 3rd of September when, um, the, in West London, University of West London. I hope to see you there. Yeah.
So um, listeners um, and watchers, look out for that uh, and look out for these news books. But that's um, everything for us now. Ian and Steve, thank you once again for being with us. Thanks very much. I'm very delighted. Yeah. Your stamina never fail. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm Bertie. That was one for one. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now.